Hello and welcome to another exciting and jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host, Daniel Lobel, and boy, it's a great episode for you today. I'm going to be talking to my old pal, Jimmy O. Yang, who you might know as Jin Yang from Silicon Valley or from the hit movie, Crazy Rich Asians, which he was hilarious in. I'm very excited to catch up with him and talk to him and for you to hear it on the show. Hope you all had a good Thanksgiving, and for my Jewish listeners, a happy Hanukkah. A lot of good stuff going on over here at Casa de Lobel. I'm going to be launching a um, YouTube show soon, which I'm very excited about, and I'll keep you guys posted on that. The new issue of Fair Enough, Fair Enough number two, The Card Before the Horse, with art by the amazing Josh Meatbag Mead out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, are flying off the shelves, and... They're not really on shelves, but people are buying them. So get your copy before it sells out. I'm already out of the first one. If you uh, didn't get on board with that one, it's now a collector's item. Fair enough, issue one. But uh, issue two, we still have some copies left. So go to fairenoughcomic.com. Makes a great Christmas gift, New Year's gift, any gift. Just get one. I'll sign it to you and... uh, You'll have the number two issue of Fair Enough. We're working on number three right now, and it's coming along great. Very excited about that. Other than that, I'm working on putting together the second annual Backyard Egmont Comedy Festival, which I think will be taking place in March. So I'll keep you guys posted about that. Last year, we had such an amazing turnout. Todd Glass did the festival. Uh, Zach Sherwin, Maddie Goldberg, Mark Schiff. I mean... Just so many great people, Avital Ash. We had just an amazing turnout back there. The backyard was packed. I think we had 120 people uh, per show for most of the shows. So uh, Erica Rhodes, I think she'll be coming back and doing another. She and Rick Overton did a, a live a live talk in the backyard. So a live talk, a live interview where they talked. I guess it is a live talk, right? Um, so I'm keeping busy making my own things and uh, enjoying being creative and enjoying living in Los Angeles with my beautiful wife and my dogs. And we are getting ready for the next steps in our life. So uh, it's good. It's good to feel like I'm, I'm making progress and I'm uh, getting stronger. I lost 20 pounds, by the way. And I did that by switching to a mostly plant-based diet. And by exercising a minimum of 30 minutes a day, I'm feeling so good. I can't recommend it enough. If anybody out there is struggling with their weight, hit me up. And anybody can hit me up at thecomical at yahoo.com, but I'm happy to talk to you about it. Um, Basically, we have been lied to. We have been lied to by nutritionists. We've been lied to by diets. And I'm angry about it. I'm going to do a show about it. I'm going to put together a show just about weight loss because... It's, it's so outrageous, the lies that we are being fed and the food that we are feeding ourselves based on these lies. So it's really important that you guys get your health together. We have to live a long time. I, I look at my buddy Ralphie May, and it's just so tragic what the world lost when we lost him. And I don't want to join that club, and I don't want you guys to join that club either. So let's get healthy together. All right, why keep you guys waiting anymore? I feel ready. I think you're ready. Let's get right into the episode without any further ado, except, of course, for the intro song. I give you my talk with my hilarious friend, Jimmy O. Yang. 
Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers! Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel! Modern Day Philosophers. I'm sitting here with my buddy Jimmy O. Yang. Hey, gang. And uh, what is the O, by the way? I don't remember that. It's, it's part of my last name. So my last name is O-U space Y-A-N-G. It's two words in Chinese. Uh-huh. And people always get confused. I used to put them together for my stand-up. Yeah. People will never be able to pronounce that because it's like four vowels in a roll. And, and then O, so then I separated it. I might just take the O out at some point, but I like it for now. This was before you became Lowball Jimmy. Oh, man. Lowball Jim. That was my first name when I first started stand-up. Because my legal Chinese name is Manxing Ouyang. And nobody will ever remember that, right? Especially for, like, stand-up comedy. So I used a stage name called Lowball Jim. Uh, it lasted about two months. Yeah. Well, I know that because I read your book, which is saying a lot because I'm not a, a very good reader. And it takes me a long time. And usually I, I get, like, halfway through a book. Uh-huh. But your book is amazing, man. It's Thank like you, you should be so proud of it. It's an excellent book. And Thank it's you. called How to American and um, An Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. And it's available now. And I'm, I usually don't plug things at the top of the show, but because I like the book so much, I want to kind of get right into it. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, how long did it take you to write this? About six months to actually get down to write it. These are all the stories that I know. It's just about my life, right? And uh, some of it I've always wanted to write in the stand-up, but um, I haven't gone through the process of writing it down and then turning it into stand-up. So this was just kind of part of the process. And uh, it, it was really, it was fun. And, and the great thing about writing was whenever I was shooting a movie somewhere else, I, I could still write, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe it only took you six months. It's so well-written and it's so easy to read. And the stories are just, like, really great. You have such a good talent for this. Thanks, man. You know, I think I'm not a great reader myself, so I definitely wanted something that I could read. You yeah, know? I yeah. appreciate it. For us, like, uh, not great readers. This is, <laughs> <laughs> but there's so, many, uh, there's so much to talk about from reading the book. You were a strip club DJ. That was a whole chapter in itself, yes. And uh, you almost wound up becoming a strip club proprietor. Yes. I think when I graduated college with an econ degree... I was just a bit lost, and I was just trying to find my way around. And I had three jobs. I um, I worked at a used car lot during the day, and I worked at Comedy Palace in San Diego, collecting tickets, trade and trade for like some stage time. And then at night, I'll put in a shift at this strip club called Fantasy Showgirl in San Diego. It's it's no longer there, but it's like really seedy and like run by pretty much gangsters. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I just as, thought, as one might imagine, the strip yeah. club. Yeah, I, I just thought be. it was cool because I was this young kid, 22 years old. You know, I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to get laid. You know, like <laughs> this strip club is going to be awesome. But no, man, I soon realized like everybody that worked at that strip club didn't really want to be there. They just didn't have a choice but to work there because they've been to prison many times. And that's like one of the things that are 
like obvious to us now, but like when you're young, you you don't really understand these things. You think it's like this fantasy life, and yeah. then you realize no, these are just really sad people who got stuck here. You yeah, know? they they would much rather get a desk job if they could. <laughs> yeah, but they can't because they either have tattoo on their face or or, or they're back back in prison. That he was in the Aryan Brotherhood or something. That was actually one of our bouncers. It was pretty funny how the guy they liked you so much they were going to open up a second strip club and have you run it. The owner told me. Uh, lap dance sales went up 44% the first week I was there. <laughs> I didn't know he was keeping score like that. It's such a it's precise yeah, number. I know. But I was pretty good. Like, I, I cared about my job. I made sure, you know, the girls were, like, on time going on stage. And I was pro- very professional inside of a kind of gangster environment. Yeah. So he wanted to keep me around, man. He really trusted me. So he's like, hey, kid, I just came into some money. I want to open up a new club, and I want you to run it. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. Like, this is one of those moments. Like, it's one of those crossroads in your life where you either pick the good decision or wrong decision. Or, in a way, maybe there's no wrong decisions here, right? Like, I No, I think there was definitely a wrong decision. <laughs> <laughs> no, that could have took your life in a whole nother way. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll be the strip club underground king, man. Ain't nothing wrong with that. You got out easy. Like, uh, it seemed like the guy really cared about you. And he, he did, to my surprise. You know, my. My mentor in the comedy club comedy is like Sean Kelly. I don't know if you guys know him. Uh, he ended up on the show Storage Hunters. Yeah, yeah. You, you write about that in the book. Yeah, he's a really fun, cool guy. And also, he's a bit older than me, and he's always been my mentor ever since I started stand-up. And stand-up. <laughs> stand-up. And um, yeah, he was the one that called me. He's like, dude, Jimmy, you got to get out of that club, man. Move back to L.A. You know, pursue comedy. You're pretty good at it. Do that, you know. You don't want to be in this gangster ass environment uh, when it's too late. So then I talked to the owner. His name was Shooter. Probably shot somebody. I don't know. <laughs> and um, I was like, "Hey, look, I gotta go to L.A. pursue my comedy." And he he still kind of you know insisted I should stay, but he kind of let me out easy because he respected that. You know, he's yeah. like, "Yo, you're a funny kid. You know, you should you should go up there and do that." And then when I did move up here, he call he would call me out of the blue on a different random number, like an unknown number yeah, every month. Yeah. And I'll be like, "Hello." He's like, "Hey, kid, how are you doing?" He he wouldn't announce who he was, but I knew who he was. I'm like, "Hey, shooter, how's it going, man? I'm well. You know, just <laughs> I did this open mic last night. You know, and uh, things are looking good." And he's like, "Anybody bothering you up there?" And I'm like, uh, no, no, everybody's cool. He's like, all right, <laughs> just want to check. And then we hang up. That's kind of cool, right? That is like pretty he just cool. had my back. Yeah. And then you said when he passed away, you felt like you lost a guardian angel. Yeah, man. Uh, my other friend, Polo the Cholo, uh, he's also a stand-up comic. He was a strip club DJ at a different strip club. And he was the one that broke the news to me because uh, Shooter hadn't called me in a while. And then, uh, Polo was like, yeah, man, he, he, he just passed. And I was like, man. Now if somebody's actually fucking with me here in LA, I don't have nobody to beat him up. Oh man, I'm sorry. I can't uh I can't be your guy. <laughs> maybe Danny Lobel will be my guy. <laughs> it's not gonna like, hey, hey, you all right, kid? <laughs> anybody mess with you at the improv last night? <laughs> all right, just checking. You know, I used to have like when I read that story, it reminded me I used to have a friend kind of similar situation. Um in some ways. He was called John Wayne the Black Cowboy, soul brother number one. That's a that's, sick name. That's what he went by. What does he do? He's a tax accountant with that name? No, he he was a painter <laughs> in, the t- in the town that I grew up in. He he painted houses and he was a wino uh-huh. and he always hung out at the train station and he spray painted all his clothes gold and he wore a gold cowboy hat. Everything he had was gold. Damn. 
And I, I don't know how we became friends, but I, I guess probably I, I was like, who's this guy completely spray painted gold? And uh, started talking to him one day when I was a kid, and we just became good friends. And uh, he used to get random stuff from people's houses, like as payment. They'd be like, because he wasn't like a legit painter. They'd be like, "Hey, John uh -huh. Wayne, paint paint this, and uh, we'll give you that." Is he good though? I don't know. I never had I never had the experience of seeing his paintwork except on his clothes. <laughs> but um, he just he goes into people's houses, spray paint their shit gold. No, he just paint like their garage or whatever. But he like the way he. Oh, you mean like I thought you meant like he was like an artist, like a painter. No, no, no. Like he was a house painter. Like he. Would <laughs> <laughs> that's a hell of a name for a painter. Yeah, and he had like flyers. Oh, maybe that's how that's how I got to know him because he had flyers all over town that had a picture of him in a cowboy hat. Uh -huh. and he put them on all the telephone poles. They were like photocopied, and they said John Wayne Black Cowboy Soul Brother Number One, and like his beeper number so i beeped him one day what year was this this is the 90s oh okay so it was, it was the beeper era it wasn't like 2015 the dude was using. oh no no it was a, it was a legit time to have a beeper uh-huh uh -huh. so i beeped him one day he never had a phone so he called me from a public phone and he's like what's up i'm like i just wanted to meet the black cowboy uh he's like come down to the train station man come hang out so i went down there i was like a little kid he offered me a cigarette i'm like no nah, i'm good and that's how i met him and I started hanging out with him, and uh, he was just a really entertaining, eccentric character. You know, this is usually how kids get molested. Yeah, I just know. at a train station <laughs> with, a, with a man with a with a gold cowboy hat. That's where the story's going. Yeah, yeah. That's. Are you trying to tell me something, Danny? Are you okay? <laughs> yeah. Then then he would molest me every Wednesday, and uh, I went down the train station. This guy just molested me for five years. No, he was a, he was a really good guy. It was funny because like. I invited him to my bar mitzvah. Oh, wow. And uh, he he wouldn't come into, I guess he didn't feel comfortable to come into the synagogue. But he was, he, when I when I left, he was hanging out outside, you know, in his all spray painted gold uh, hat yeah. and, and clothes. He's like, yeah, I don't want to go in there, man, but I just want to come show your respects on your bar mitzvah. So I ditched my bar mitzvah for like an hour. Nobody knew where I went. And, and I just went. Getting molested in the train station. Yeah. <laughs> I got molested. <laughs> That's where you went. I became a man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Molestation is nothing but, to joke about. Uh, yeah, we, we just walked to the boardwalk, which is, uh, I live in, in Long Beach, New York, so there's a boardwalk, and we just walked down the boardwalk, and, and he told, like talked about life. This dude borrowed you from your bar mitzvah for an hour to walk down a boardwalk? Yeah, and everyone's like, where were you? I was like, I was hanging out with uh, John Wayne. How would like, you explain that to your parents? Well, they were just like, they were like flustered. Like, what happened to you? Like, everybody's looking for you. They and thought you were dead, probably? Yeah, I don't kidnapped. know. Kidnapped? And then I told them, and I guess they didn't want to get mad at me on my bar mitzvah. And they were just like, okay, whatever. You got to come back and like talk to all our friends. What do you guys talk now. about, you and John Wayne? I don't know. Brother but we one. used to talk all the time. And he never had a phone, so he just, he never got a phone. So he I gave him my phone as soon as I had a cell phone number. He'll give you life advice? Yeah, he'd give like, me life advice of like, just like. How to paint houses? It was more like about like, just like how to get by. Uh -huh. Be like, you know, like, you know, you got to take the gig and just, I don't know, just stuff like that. Take the gig, keep a smile on your face, you know, have a drink. 
It's all good, baby. You know that kind of thing. He was, so, do you do, do do you live by some of that philosophy now? No, I really, I rarely remember any of it. Honestly, I just kind of, I just found him so entertaining and to be around. And when I was a kid, I used to like try and find the characters in town and hang around them. That's what's good about New York. You can find so many characters. Yeah. Shout out to my boy, uh, New York Nico, on Instagram. He, oh yeah. He, he just follows around different people in New York and really interesting stories on his Instagram. Oh, cool. Yeah, New York Nico. New York Nico. So, yeah, so John Wayne, um, then he came by like a week after my bar mitzvah and gave me this record player that I still have to this wow. day that someone gave him as a payment for painting their garage. Did your parents ever meet him? Kind of. They'd be like, hey, they were like, they thought he was pretty sketchy. They didn't understand right. the relationship like you, like you didn't, like most people wouldn't. Yeah. Um, but he called me randomly throughout the years. To check in on me, That's like nice. like oh, your he guy. finally got a phone. No, always from different payphone numbers. Oh man! But he had my cell phone number, which yeah. didn't change for and still hasn't changed for many years. Same number, same hood. And then cool. and then the call stopped, and somebody told me he he died. Wow! How same old like, was he when you were hanging out with him? When I met him, he was in his forties, and he was a full blown wino. You know, like ah. he always was drinking a box of wine or something. Which I, you know, a box of wine is the funnier way to drink wine. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think for him it was for comedy. It was yeah. just cheap. <laughs> but to it me, as a kid, cheap. I thought it was so funny, dude. Th that was you had some balls when you were a kid to hang out with a stranger. You know, basically alcoholic. That's just getting by. Yeah, I remember. I thought he was the coolest guy in the world, and he had like fake guns that were spray painted gold. Oh wow! And I remember like the the first time I met him at at the train station. The stuff is coming back to me now. He had like a fake duel with somebody at the train station, another wino. Oh my god! And and I was you'll just, get shot these days. Yeah, yeah. But it was it was like it was totally fake. But it was I was just like, wow, this guy's like a living cartoon character. It's it's funny what you think is the coolest thing when you're a kid. Just right. Really, any adult. He's basically he's like a cartoon character, right? Like you're saying, like so. You think that's awesome, but like as an adult, you're just like, okay, get it, get away from this guy. Right, right. You know? Like I still try to remain somewhat of that. Like even when I was working the strip club with like Shooter and all those guys, like as as long as you approach them like normal human beings, the same thing with like celebrities, right? If you just respect them and act like they're normal instead of like characters on TV, I think uh, you know it makes for some interesting conversation and some relationships, you know? Yeah, because people are just people at the end of the day. Absolutely. But that's, yeah, what resonated for me from, and that's why I opened with that story from your book, was that there is like this very sweet innocence to you in the book and throughout your life in these different stories. Yeah, I think I never judge people, like even if they're gangsters or if people that I hated in the corporate world or like my teachers, whatever, right? Like even my family members, it's just people are people, man. And I look at it a very honest almost in a way innocent childlike lens you yeah. know and, and i would like to keep that certain things in life humble you and make you grow up but you know hopefully you keep that innocence and, and still give people the benefit of the doubt that's what it is yeah yeah i think the, the real heartfelt family stuff is at the beginning and at the end of the book mm -hmm. and um you talk about like this period of your life when you came from hong kong as a kid mm -hmm. so it's, you know what's interesting to me is that like your parents we're, your dad, anyway, I think you said was from Shanghai. Yeah. And that's like 
considered Hong Kong versus Shanghai. Yeah, it's like um like because Shanghai's mainland China, Hong Kong's a British colony, so Hong Kong people has a superiority complex, uh-huh. and uh, it's like being racist against each other. It's like how we make fun of maybe Canadians, right? Even mm-hmm. though we're very similar in a way. So growing up in Hong Kong, even people call me like the Shanghai boy and make fun of my dad's Shanghainese accent. So that was, I guess, like early lessons of standing up for myself and assimilating. So when I came to America when I was 13, I was a little more prepped. What struck me about that was the fact that it seems like you never fully belonged anywhere. Yeah. Um, that's that's an interesting thing about like somewhere like L.A., right? Because uh, you just have so many different groups. It doesn't seem like there's a centralized thing. Like I feel like in middle America, okay, you have white, you know, you're raised in, say, Ohio. You're that person that belongs. This is your state. This is your country. But in L.A., the beautiful and the weird thing about it is nobody, there's not like a centralized thing. Uh, there's black people that do, you know, their own family things, you know, Jewish kids that do their own family things, Asian kids that do their own thing. Even amongst the Asian kids, it was the Korean kids, the Chinese kids. Mm-hmm. And when I first went to school in L.A., like in middle school and high school, it was mostly Korean kids. And they didn't even want to, like, fuck with me like that because they were born here and they were Korean. They, they were like a China boy or like Chinese boy or whatever. They, they don't really want to fuck with me because they don't want to be grouped in as the um uh, uh, foreign Asians, you know, whereas I was like the fresh off the boat foreign kid. Yeah. So, yeah, you just kind of got to find your own way, you know? But it, seem, it seems like you were an outsider from birth. Like you were even an That's outsider. true. Yeah. Which is, which is good. I mean, it's perfect for stand-up comedy. I, yeah. I wrote about it in my book. Like stand-up comedy was one of the first places where I felt I really belong because that's where all the outsiders belong. Right. And the weirder you are, the more interesting your backstory is, the funnier you're probably going to be, you know? So um, I really felt like a sense of home when I found stand-up. Yeah, and it seemed like you were searching for that with all the different things from like the- Oh, for sure. I mean, know, the from working at a car lot, and- strip club, rapping, uh, 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 going to college, economics degree, and then I really found it in stand-up comedy. One of the things uh, you talked about early in the book is you're, you're, you move here with your folks, mm-hmm. and then your mom- uh, gets this job offer back in China, yeah. Which I think is uh, probably she left because your dad kept insulting her cooking. It's <laughs> you know, so I, I think it was basically a de facto divorce, right? You know, white people get divorced all the time when the kids. So this happened when I was fourteen or fifteen. They were arguing a lot. You know, it wasn't the greatest, most loving relationship, but they kept it together mainly for the kids, right? Me and mm-hmm. my brother, um, but. You know, so I think when my mom finally got a job offer from Shanghai when she was in America, that was like her excuse to kind of leave and, you know, do her own thing finally for the first time as a woman. Um, so she chose that and left us for on and off for 10 years. She'll come back f- for a month or two months at a time. And that was a hard chapter for me to write because growing up, like if, if they would have just gotten divorced, it will be easier. Yeah, there's a lot of people out there that's gotten divorced. I could find my creed from that. Like I could talk to other friends that have divorced parents. But this is such a weird situation because they were still together. They're still together now. Now my mom moved back and they still live together. They just argue a lot. Do you think that you attributed to that? The fact that you became successful? They're like, all right, I guess we did something right. Maybe I'll move back. Uh, I I don't think so. I think it was just uh, the economy has changed over there a little bit. She was very successful in her job in Shanghai. She was working in f- fashion, was Fashion, it? and she was a general manager for this uh, really, like imagine one of those like 
clothing slash furniture stores on Melrose, mm-hmm. and it was very successful. It was by a famous Chinese artist that eventually passed away, so the business kind of went downhill from there. And uh, so financially, you know, we needed that extra income, you know, from Shanghai, and you know. Um, but now she ended up buying a house back here, and then uh, my dad lives there too. Uh, so, and they have a dog now. Yeah, it's so like their kid, so they take care of it. It's fine, but they still argue a whole lot. So, back to my point of saying that was, it's a weird situation, and there's not a lot of immigrant stories out there. But I'm sure a lot of people share this scenario. I remember my cousin, uh, her, his mom wanted to move back too. She didn't, but it was a tough time in his life when she was debating if she should move back or not. So a lot of times when the immigrant family come here, um, you know, we all seem like the model minority, right? Especially the Asians, like doing our own thing, you know, making money, doing well, living in nice places or decent places. But really, there's a lot of turmoil internally in the family. That people don't talk about, especially Chinese families. So I really want to share this side of my truth, my story, as as tough as it was for me to share it. Of my mom not assimilating as well as we were, and that's why she chose to move to Shanghai. Mm-hmm. So it for, sounds like as a kid you felt like she was abandoning you, and well, I uh, think any I mean, she kid, did essentially abandon you, right? A- any yeah. kid in a divorce, anything feels the same way, you know. Um, but it, it's a very uh, more complicated scenario than that so i think i i hope other kids maybe that are going through that or went through that can relate and feel you know less uh less stranded on an island by themselves type of deal um but yeah man uh i i did feel that way because i think growing up we it was a small nuclear family just four of us like we did everything together you know i wasn't as independent as like american kids going out to hang out with their friends and then sleeping over and stuff like that it was just all four of us so that was the first time when i was 15 when she left that was the first time like oh my god like this family's not together anymore so that was tough and um i think that eventually led to me kind of being a little more of the wild child, you know, for a Chinese family and kind of pursuing other stuff because I was trying to fit in in the world outside now instead of just being insulated in this four people family. Yeah, it's really a story of like stepping out of your culture against against your family's will and Yeah. Cuz if I was if my mom would have stayed, you know, I was still the baby of the family. I would have probably, you know, stayed doing whatever Chinese people do and be like that obedient kid that like went through um you know, uh, uh, college and, and became like one of those Chinese jobs, did one of those Chinese jobs. But you know what? Like, um, I, I didn't find the same comfort I found in family anymore. So I felt like I needed to find another family outside. Yeah. You're like, your mom left all bets are off. You know, this, you know? this whole yeah. thing is falling apart. I'm taking it into my own hands. And I think that's, that's how a lot of, uh, you know, family dysfunctions or divorces, stuff like that, uh, parents passing away that type of stuff leads to a lot of um kids finding themselves which you know sometimes lead to some art did your family uh give you any pushback on the book did you have to get approval for when you wrote about them no i i uh i decidedly not to show it to my dad until it's out yeah because i know i can't i can't let him edit it right yeah because it wouldn't be an honest story so he did read it he did give it up he was like this is very good writing like congratulations but he was like man the more i read it i just like all the stuff like you're smoking weed in college working a strip club i didn't know about that so he was worried about that like retrospectively Mm -hmm. which is nice of him 
But also, he was upset about the fact that he was like, how, how dare you tell other people like me and mom was having like arguments all the time. You make us look like a dysfunctional family. Yeah. And like, you know, you're talking about like grandpa's house in a small apartment or like, you know, with a stool and like it just it smelled like grandpa's smell and all that. It's like, that's that's disrespectful, man. Don't be talking about your grandpa like that. And then I'm like, okay, well, it's the book's out. I, I had the same do? situation with my comic book, uh, Fair Enough, that just came out. Mm. I wrote a little bit about my parents and I gave them a copy when it came out and my dad flipped out on me because Jewish mm. family and Chinese family have a lot of the same yes. kind of values. And and I wrote We it. like to keep things close to the vest, keep it within the family. Yeah, which is totally against uh show business or like trying to or yeah. art or like yeah. you're trying to like share your story, like you said, finding people who, who can relate, which was yeah. what you were looking for. Just it's your life that you want to talk about and share it yeah. as a piece of art. And so I, I thought I was pretty respectful in the comic book. My dad went nuts on me when he first read it. And he's like, why did you tell people that you were scholarship kids? And that and it's such it, trivial things. To, to me, but I guess to him, he had this pride that... It's a pride and, yeah. and, and ego thing for them. And, and it disguised it in a way. In a cultural sense, they're like, in our culture, we don't do that. It's like, yes. no, you just, uh, it's just your pride, you know? And um, so he, he's getting over it. It's fine. And he's lobbying to everyone. He's, he's telling everyone that this book is 90% real and like 10% fiction. <laughs> I'm like that. It's all real. Okay. Like it's, what are you talking about? Like he's just really lobbying to other people. And uh, every time he gives the book to like my aunt or something, he has to sh claim this disclaimer. Yeah. You know, but I'm like, dude, it's, it's <laughs> all right. Like, and everybody that's read the book um, is like, dude, like it shows that you're respectful to your parents and you love your parents. And I don't think- That's what I know, got from people too, but I had the same yeah, situation. But it's your own family. And and how did you feel about that? Like, were oh, you I was upset about I it? I was crushed about Me it. Me too. Yeah. yeah. Because, because I mean, you you write this book like in my book. I, I haven't read yours yet. I'm gonna read it. You just gave it to me. Um, but in my book, like I read it in such a respectful way. It's almost paying tribute to my father. That's how I felt. Yeah, but I, then yeah, but they didn't see it that way. Our dads. Yeah, it's, it's a cultural divide, man. And I think that's one of the main themes in my book is the Western culture is finding your own way, being independent. Whereas the Eastern culture, maybe Jewish culture, also it's being obedient, following the rules. So it's polar opposites. Right. And you know what? Unfortunately for him, I chose the more Western independent artist, you know, route, uh, even though growing up in a Chinese family. And, and, and I think it's so important. It's because of that mindset, because of that guilt that our parents have given us, that there aren't a lot of material out there about, you know, immigrant families, about Chinese families. So people are like starving for that because I wish I, I would read something like that. And right. it's like, oh my God, this is so true. This is me. This is my story. That's like you know? what I wanted to talk about of being like this kid in a yeshiva in a Jewish school and uh, where everybody was super rich and my family was struggling. And I'm like, there have to be other kids like that that would read exactly. this. And so like we find ourselves in an interesting position, you and I, because, you know, it's it's not just cultural. I think it's also generational. I think they come from a generation of secrecy where we come from a generation where we share everything. Like, yeah. Like everybody's life is on display all the time. And and, and and I mean, one of the things for me, especially as an actor or as an artist in general, is to be honest and be vulnerable. You know, that was the main thing I think that 
that separates good art and like the art that you you feel disconnected with, um, and which is unfortunately the opposite of our parents' mindset. Right. You know, my mom was raised by a Holocaust survivor, and her mentality is keep everything a secret because like. Otherwise, people will know too much about you, and they'll come after you. And and that's generational trauma. I, I actually I talked to Doctor Drew about this. It happens, you know, especially with something that horrific that happened, like in the Holocaust. And uh, my my father grew up in the Cultural Revolution, where people kick down their door, and then they'll come in. The Red Army will come in and uh, uh, take their shit. And both of my grandparents went to jail. So it's probably the same thing, you know. It's very similar, but it's it's and, the, and that anxiety gets passed down to you. But uh, you know, I, yeah. you got to kind of fight through it. I guess that's a really good way of putting it. It's passed down anxiety. Yeah, it's and clinical. It's it's pathological. Yeah, yeah. I feel like only now am I trying to like decipher. I'm like, what is actually my anxiety versus what is their anxiety that right. I've inherited? Like, I I want so. a lot of therapy, and and it's like even when I get road rage, it's and and my therapist always say, is that your dad talking or is that you talking? Like like you know, when yeah. you get angry and stuff. Um, and I realized a lot of it is just me, you know, copying my dad's behavior a lot mm-hmm. of times, you know, and and his behavior comes from. A lot of trauma of people kicking him down his door and his dad going to jail and shit, you know? Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Like these things wind up programming our parents and then they wind up programming us. Exactly. It gets so, passed down. Yeah. It's, it's a, I also think it's just hard to be written about. I think when it's out of your control, the, yeah. any way that someone portrays you, it's not exactly how you, because we all have an image of ourselves in our mind. Yeah. And we expect everybody sees us the way we hope to be seen. The first time anybody did an impression of me, just like a, a, a buddy, a comedian, everybody was cracking up. And then I'm like, what? This is, this is me? Like, I didn't know I was that guy. Yeah. But then you start learning about yourself. You're like, wow, that's actually pretty on point, you know? <laughs> it's like the first time, if, if you're not on TV or radio, like the first time you hear your voice, you're like, what, is this what I sound like? Yeah. Like, I sound horrible, you know, but then you come to terms with it. Yeah. It's interesting. Even just being drawn in these comic books, this is the first one. There's a second one coming out by a different artist. And just, like, having different artists draw me mm-hmm. is, is an impression of me in a way that I've had to, like, you know, I'm not going to go to them and be like, actually, I don't feel like you... I'm, yeah. I'm not going to micromanage the way they draw me. Exactly. But my impulse is always to do that. And I'm like, no, if I feel a little embarrassed by that drawing, that is how they see me. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, in one of the drawings, I was like, oh, this person made me kind of look like a rabbi. I feel like they overjewed me. And then, like, <laughs> overjewed you. <laughs> That's <me>. hilarious. <laughs> and then in another uh, image, the art, other artist like, made me look like a lot fatter than I am in my head, you know? <laughs> Yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I kind of relate to my dad's, um, but it was rough. I mean, I wanted them so badly to be proud of it. And then, and also to be- Are they proud of it now? Like to some degree? I think they're getting there, but mm-hmm. but um, I don't know. For, I just For me, it's just, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say like, I, I really wanted them to be proud of it and to like, be excited that they were portrayed in my story and like to be part of the story. Yeah. But like my, my mom's first, my dad's first reaction was to call up and like scream at me. And then my mom calls and she's like, you know, in Judaism, one of the biggest sins you could do is embarrass your parents. And like, but that's me, the like guilt. a ton of bricks, you know? 
Those guilt. It is guilt. It's it's the only way because American people they accept the fact that when a kid turns eighteen, there's nothing they can do. But there's one thing that you can really do is guilt them. Yeah. And Asian parents and Jewish parents know that very well. Yeah. And they're using religion and sin to try to guilt you. Yeah. You know. But yeah. really, it's it's them trying to control you one last time. Uh huh. You know, yeah. and I try not listen to that, and I, I think I'm past it. And I want to say that because for the longest time, it's like you just want like you. So so when the book came out, when when uh, I was on Colbert on the couch, not even as a comic, like that's a big moment in my life, right? Yeah. And my buddy Julian, he's black. His mom called me, Melinda, and she let me the sweetest message. Like Jimmy, I just want you to know you're amazing. I saw you on Colbert. You've came such a long way. I always knew you were gonna make it, and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Like even when you used to come to my house, you know, you used to make beats and rap with Julian. I knew you were like doing something special, you know, something creative. So just congratulations. So proud of you. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my god, that's that that made me cry. That message, because I've never heard that from my parents. Yeah. And I always try to get it out of my dad, you know. So my dad finally, when he finished reading the book, he did call me. He was actually a little teary eyed. But he, he was like, you know, it's really good writing, and and I I'm just sad that you know I wasn't there to protect you when you're at the strip club, which is really sweet, right? Yeah. But he still didn't give it up. I'm like, you know, uh, thanks for the call, but sometimes I just still wish that you say you're proud of me, you know, and instead of joking around, because he he's a ballbuster, as you will see in the book, like he right. jokes, yeah, right, he's a comedian. So he was like. Oh, come on. I say that all the time when you're a kid. What are you, still a kid? You need validation all the time? Like, you need me to say, I'm proud of you? Like, but I'm like, okay, now, you th- now you're making fun of me for me being vulnerable. You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck? You know, why can't you just be like Melinda? But then, you know, my therapist actually told me, he's like, yo, you trying to make your dad into somebody he's not. He's proud of you deep down. But you're trying to make him say things that he's not going to say and, and you expect some out of him that it's not and that upsets you. And I'm like, yo, that's right, you know? So It's pretty good it, it's like, analysis, yeah. Yeah, it's like, well, I, I need to get past it. I'm just doing it now that, uh, you know, that shouldn't be my main motivation, right? Like yeah. I should just do it so I, I'm happy with it myself, you know? And, and whatever my mission is with this book, for other people to relate to it, to, for them to feel a little better or to see immigration assimilation in a first-person point of view. And if I can achieve that, that's great. Parents' approval, secondary. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, the theme of the parents' approval is huge in the book. I mean, like even mm-hmm. you talk about when you did Arsenio and, and, he, and he told you you did it. Yeah, and that was the first time anybody. Yeah, Arsenio put his hand on my shoulder. I was like, "You did it, kid. You did it." Nobody's ever told me that. Like, you know, maybe an audience member would say, "Hey, man, you're funny," but you don't really take that, you know, in. But Arsenio was somebody I grew up with, so I was like, "Oh my god, he's right." Like, I did do it. One thing I wondered when I was reading the book, it seems like it's pretty cultural in um, in Asian families not to show this kind of what we would consider warmth in America. Yeah. And I, I kept wondering if, like, had you been raised your whole life in Hong Kong, if you would have even wanted that, do you think you would have still had those desires, or do you think they were kind of implanted in you from growing up in Western society? That's really interesting, because I didn't even hug nobody until, you know, uh, I moved here to America. I didn't even know how hugging worked, and it's such a casual thing here. I mean, to the point that I don't even hug nobody in Hong Kong. I'm at my grandma. I give her a handshake. I've only hugged maybe one person in a funeral. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when you hug people. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, and now I wish my parents would, you know, it'd be like more of a hugger. Right. But you're right. Is that cultural or is that like a? But I think there is inside like an innate want for to uh, to to have affection and 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 for your parents to say, "Hey, I love you. I'm proud of you." Here, may, maybe splitting the difference, right? Like China, people don't say it at all. But here, people say like, even if I I, I leave your podcast or I, we go to a bar, get a drink, I'm like, "Hey, I love you, Danny." Yeah, it's too casual. It kind of <laughs> like it loses a little bit of its luster. Yeah. So I just want maybe something. You, you just you just want validation, man. You know, you so being, you do you do think then that people in uh, in Asian countries are feeling that inside, just not expressing it. It's hard. It's hard to be vulnerable, which. Um, so people aren't very vulnerable because that's the culture and people aren't very, uh, um, I guess loving on the surface. Right. But they do do everything right. They take care of their kids, you know, they feed their kids and they take care of their parents. So who to say, who's to say like, they're not doing it wrong. Cause we say, I love you all the time, but trust me, there's a higher, higher divorce rate. Here in America, uh, there's higher kids that grew up with a single parent here in America. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard to say, man. Um, or can we get the best of both worlds, right? I don't know. Can you be vulnerable? Because sometimes I run into problems with the vulnerability thing because uh, there are certain things I want to say to my dad or I want to um, kind of intellectually say to him um, uh, without getting into an argument. But I can't really do that in the Chinese language or even the language that we are used to speaking um, uh, because it lacks that vulnerability and that openness. Um, And I don't know. I think maybe one culture breeds a little more artistry Mm -hmm. in the Western culture and the other culture breeds a little more family respect, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think this whole story is a family coming to an entirely different culture and like struggling between holding on to what is you know the way they grew up mm-hmm. versus like what they now think they should be, because I almost wonder if that's why your mom left too. I wonder if your mom never would have done that if you guys had stayed in Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean she would have been fine. Like maybe her and my dad would still argue, but she will have her friend group. She will have family friends. She will have plenty to do. But when she came here, she had nothing to do. Yeah. Like, you know, she didn't know no friends. Like, you know, she, maybe just a couple relatives here and there. And she worked at a job that she didn't like here just to make ends meet, you know? Yeah. So it seems like you guys were all just trying to figure it out. And you wound up all in in your own way doing like the Western thing. Your parents were like, oh, let's do the, the Western people. They get divorced. They didn't fully get divorced, yeah, yeah, but yeah. they like they dabbled with it. My mom know? definitely kind of had a Western midlife crisis type of deal and <laughs> went to pursue yeah. her dreams and do what she loved in China. And I think I took after a little bit of that. Yeah. You know, it's pretty unconventional for yeah. especially a Chinese woman, a uh, housewife to do that. Right. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. It's I'm, like Delma and Louise. Yeah. I think she's got a taste of that American uh, culture and was also, and, yeah. may, and maybe in some ways. Uh, I think she was born born like that. It's probably a DNA thing, right? Like like she was just more inclined to take risks and, and, and pursue that independence. Yeah, maybe. But maybe it was actually coming here and seeing people doing things like that that gave her that that could be it too especially in the older generation you know they get married you know fairly young and then they have kids and then their 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 life becomes just taking care of the kids and becoming that housewife and then when your kids get a little older you're like oh shit i haven't really done much with my life 
And then like Thelma and Louise, they go murder somebody. Spoiler alert, by the way. <laughs> like I said, there's this very sweet innocence to you that like shines through this whole book where you're, you're, you're this foreign kid who's essentially all by yourself. Yeah. And uh, thrown into a different culture, into a different world and trying to fit in. And uh, I don't know, it's just like, it's funny when you're in the comedy club in the comedy palace and they're all talking about how many women they slept with and yeah. you're sitting there and like, oh, like, oh my God, like, you know, th- are these real numbers? And I totally remember that from when I started stand up and I was hanging out at the New York Comedy Club and everyone was talking about these astronomical numbers of women they slept with. Hundreds I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah, there's this guy, Dante Nero, who I'm still friends with, who was a male stripper before he got into stand-up, and he made some claim of numbers in the thousands. Oh, wow. And um, and it's like, as a young comic, you couldn't even wrap your mind around that. Yeah. Like, I had barely lost my virginity. <laughs> you know what I mean? And also, I realize it's not me, you know? it's These guys are them for me. Right. Yeah. Like, And then you realize you're actually more normal. These are the crazy people. The crazy people. And Dante, like... I remember, like, when I was uh, trying to pick up women, I'd ask him for advice. And he's like, you got you to talk dirty to them. You got to learn. He's like, you got to get your dirty talk on point. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't think I have good dirty talk. I grew up in a religious Jewish family. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, uh, he's like, how about we go break your body and eat some pork chops? Huh? Yeah, you know, he goes, I'm going to, what's your email address? I'm going to send you some stuff. So I give him my email address. I'll show you the email. It's hysterical. He, you- he said, I still have it saved. He sent me an email of all these dirty things you could say to a girl. And he typed it up? He typed it up with like all these giant what are rings some examples? on his hands. So what are some examples? I don't remember. But I just remember that one time when I had him on this podcast, um, Alex sent me the philosopher for him. Uh, I always say, I'm having this guest on. Can you give me a philosopher to talk about? So I went to print up the philosopher. I typed his name into my email search to find Alex's email. This email pops up this like, yeah, you dirty cocksucker. You like that? And I'm like, what the hell is this? And then I remembered, oh, that's the email. I'm and like, he's saying that to say that to women, not yeah. just in bed. <laughs> not just in bed, but like going up to her and like the Whole Foods and be like, yeah, you dirty cocksucking like, bitch. <laughs> like, wait, what? It took my memory a minute to be like, when did he, when did I piss him off? Like, because I was like, what's this yeah, email yeah, from yeah, back yeah. in the day from Dante? And I click on it and it's just like a whole slew of insults. <laughs> you got to print it out and like make it into a poster next to uh, your Jewish posters here, you know? Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> But it works for him. But I mean, it don't work. For, I, I don't know. It could work for you. If I, I tried. I remember I tried one line <laughs> and the girl was like, what? What did you, wait, what did you say? I don't remember. I Come just on, tried man. one what? of his lines. You got to You got to think. Be, I would be making it up, honestly, because my memory but what is was not along that specific. But was it along the lines specific. of, like, you dirty cocksucker, you? Like, something like, you're a, little, you're a dirty whore or something, like. <laughs> <laughs> and this girl's like, what? Yeah. And I'm like, no, I think that's a thing. <laughs> and then you pull up the email. You're like, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. This is, this is totally a thing. This is I'm how like, people get laid, right? I'm like, you don't want me to do it. She's like, never talk to me like that. I'm like, all right. No, it's cool. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just thought it was a thing. I saw it on the book. Oh, my God. That's so great. 
when nagging goes wrong. <laughs> we, uh. we, we were like, you know, we were in the middle of sex and I said it and I thought, you oh, know. Oh, you did it in the middle of sex? Yeah. That's okay sometimes. But not, I guess I didn't have the delivery or the confidence or the fact that I'm not, you know, a giant black man. I don't know what it was. <laughs> But something about it for coming just, out of my mouth just uh, was like incredibly me. offensive. Ex- ex- excuse me, you um, you dirty whore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't tell you how to say it. He just told you the words. <laughs> sex is sex gets confusing sometimes. Yeah. Like, one time I, I I was having sex with this girl. She wanted me to like slap her, and I was like, "Are you uh, are you sure? Like you? Yeah." She was like, "Please, yeah, yeah. do do it." I was like, "Okay, I did it." And then I had forgotten, like, the next week I was having sex with somebody else and I slapped her because yeah. I, I I was like, oh. And then she was like, what what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, yeah. oh, 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 yeah. I thought I thought you liked that. I thought I the two girls confused. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, my God, I'm so fucking sorry. Like, I'm just inexperienced. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm yeah, sorry. Don't, Please don't I, give me I, a bad I review. I thought you said you liked it, but it wasn't you. I'm sorry. You dirty whore. You dirty but yeah, no, I felt I felt like I really related to you. I felt like a kinship, like that we both come from a very like innocent background and an innocent culture, and then we got thrown into the dirty world of comedy. And, exactly, man. That's and, uh, that and, world. You you think it's just normal people, but it's not. No, it's, <laughs> people are nuts. And there's like this this feeling of like I'm not enough. I remember feeling. I'm not enough of a degenerate. I need to become more of a degenerate or no one's ever going to respect me as an artist. I know. Artist. They used to make fun of me. He's like, yo, Jimmy went to college. He can figure this shit out. Yeah. Like, why the fuck you doing stand-up? You went to college, bro. Yeah. I'm like, yo, what the fuck? Like, I remember one of my girlfriends was a comedian. Still is a comedian. Very funny comedian named Katie Olson. And she grew up in a trailer park in Tampa, Florida, and she has like very mild cerebral palsy, but just enough that she could use it in her comedy. Mm. The 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 type of cerebral palsy every comic wish they had. Yeah, n- not de- <laughs> not so it's like debilitating, just enough that you can. It's true, and you can talk about it. Yeah, that you get signed by Barbara Holiday. Yeah, that's that's an inside industry joke. <laughs> and then and then um, her brother was a male prostitute. Whoa. And I remember one day feeling so jealous of her. Like, I'm like, man, come on, I didn't grow up like that. <laughs> because of comedy, where you're like, oh, man, that, that's a that's a pretty good story to have yeah, as a like, comedian. I had white comics come and say, man, I wish I had, like, I went through, like, the shit that you went through. Like, so I have some more story. I'm just a regular old white guy. I'm like, dude, I wish I'll be a regular old white guy. I wouldn't even go do comedy. Yeah. yeah. My life would be so much easier. Do you think you'd be happier? Maybe I'll be more content. Maybe I I think doing comedy. I said this in my I don't know if I said this in my book, but I always say this: like doing comedy, like going to Google and googling local open mics is one step away from googling what's the best way to kill myself. <laughs> and sometimes the answer is going to local <laughs> yeah, open. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Right? That's a good tag. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, it is. A, there's a desperation. If yeah, I come from. Just like the best, warmest life. And I'm just so content, you know, with a wife and two kids and everything is awesome. Yeah. I didn't have this fucking deep, dark hole inside of me. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't fucking go do comedy. Really? Yeah. I feel like I feel less of that deep, dark hole these days, but I've right, been more, more creative than ever. 
Now, I, see, now, do you feel the guilt? Maybe it's a generational guilt that our parents passed down because I am way more content now. I started doing comedy because I wanted, I needed to make more friends. I needed something to do. I need to figure my life out. Now, a lot of that has been figured out to a certain degree, and I could get girls without doing stand up. I couldn't, you know, go out and have fun with my friends without doing stand up. Yeah. And now I'm less inclined to go do stand up. Mm-hmm. And now I feel guilty. I'm like, oh, I'm finally in this position where I can like go perform at the improv and the laugh factory that I've always wanted to. And now, you know, they're hitting me up and I'm like, I don't want to. Are you fucking kidding me, Jimmy? Like Jimmy five years ago would have kicked me in the nuts. You know, so there is a guilt. You got but the medicine like, finally, but you no longer have the disease. Exactly. Yeah. So what the hell? Well, you know what it is? Now you're really lucky. You got to look at it like this. Like now you could be in it for the right reasons. You could be in it as an artist. Right. And strictly as an artist, not as a fix. Like not to get your fix, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And not, and now, like now you could do your best work. Cause I'm doing, I, I'm doing heroin out of artistry. Yeah. Out of the love for heroin. Yeah. Well, no, you transform it from a drug into an art. That's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. that's what I went through. And not for the same reason. I didn't get so successful like you did. I will one day, but right. in the meantime, I haven't to the point where they're all calling me. I just, I just went through a lot emotionally and, and identity wise. And I lost, you know, I, I lost Ralphie May was a big thing for me. Mm-hmm. I lost my friend. And even though we weren't so close when I lost him, he was such an important person in my life for so many years that it hit me so hard. And I got to this point where like I started healing. And I'm not a healed person by any means. I still have a long way to go. Right. And I still have addiction with food and all kinds of problems. But I'm so much farther than I used to be that I have that contentment um, in other ways. And I've got this feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm really funny now. I can get booked, you know, mm-hmm. eas- not maybe in the best places, but I can get booked some places and right. easily enough. I have a good reputation for being funny and I don't feel this need anymore to do it mm-hmm. um, in the way that I used to. And I had this freak out where I'm like, am I done? Is that it? That's what I, Dude, yeah. I had the same exact thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and I just, what I resolved is um, I was doing it for like, the, I'm lucky now because I, I got into it the way most people get into it, where you have, you need it as a drug because- Like a desperation. Yeah. 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 But then in the process of being a drug addict, stand up being your drug, right? You actually develop a talent and a skill. Mm-hmm. And then once you're able to shed that um, part of you that's desperate, now you can do it on your own terms. Right. You could talk about whatever you want. You don't care if they laugh as much. That's true. Um, and one thing I remember, I, I interviewed George Carlin, and one th- I asked him, like, after all these years of doing stand-up, is there anything you still learn mm-hmm. and, and anything profound? And he said... The biggest thing that he learned, and it took him until he was like 60 years old to learn it, was how to live in the silences. Yes. And I, and I, I contemplated that. Like, I thought about what the, that could mean a lot of different things. Like, it hits you at first in one way, and then you think about it another way. And he doesn't mean just on stage, right? He means in life also? I think he meant on stage, but I, I, I took it to mean everything it could mean, you mm-hmm. know, as I thought about it over the years, you know, it could be life. It could be 
I think I think the lesson is strong in life too. Like living in the silences is, is right. important. Yeah. And on stage it's important too. And it's I think what it means is performing without desperation, without the need to be liked, but the but the need to create something great. Yeah, you're not people pleasing. Yeah. And and trying to get validation every second with a laugh. You're doing it because you want to and you think you're actually creating and providing something for people. Yeah. And it's a shift in mentality where you're no longer doing this because you have to, but you're doing it because you want to. And I think you could do something richer that way. Yeah, for sure. No, I I think, you know, I've thrown away a lot of material now. Like uh Yesterday, I just came back from San Jose, then an hour, and there's a lot of newer stuff. It might not be like jokes per second, as many punchline as the older stuff, Yeah. but I felt so much better doing it because it's a lot of material from the book when I first came to this country that I actually wanted to share. Yeah. And I, when I got off stage, I felt so much better, you know? And, and yeah, I mean, I guess to sum it up, you, you no longer have to do it out of a desperate need, so now you can do it out of love and that's even more powerful yeah it's it's more powerful because it comes from a place of good intention mm-hmm. instead of selfishness yes you're not doing it for the last to validate you but you're actually creating something positive for the audience to experience yeah i think in life if you're giving you're always doing the right thing mm-hmm. when you're in in the mode of taking you always have to question like what's wrong right <laughs> you know yeah but if you're in giving mode like I used to want to get rich because I wanted to take. Like I, I, I had this idea that I want to get rich so I could have lots of stuff. Yeah. I still want to get rich, but I want to get rich now because I want to give. I want to. Wow. I want to be in a place where I can help. I my motives have shifted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, if I get rich, let's hope that I still continue to have this. Um, <laughs> No, you wouldn't have two Ferraris out here. <laughs> I'm giving to yeah, myself. Wouldn't even, even talk to me. Be like, hey, Danny, can I come uh, plug my new book? I'm like, man, fuck you, dog. I got two Ferraris already. So we'll see if I'm able to hold up when it happens. But um, anyway, the, the the internal desire has changed, and I feel like that's a good thing. You know? Yeah, for sure. All right, let's get into this philosophy. The guy that Alex picked for you is someone named William Jevons. And he says, what you have in common with William, he says, Jimmy's on Silicon Valley. So he picked the philosopher of technology. He nice. Went, he went with that. Is this a modern philosopher? Um, well, let's see. William Stanley Jevons was born September 1st, 1835 and lived okay. till August 13th, 1882. So not oh. that long ago, but not, you know. Yeah, yeah. He didn't invent like, you know. Uh, uh, electric, electric cars <laughs> yeah. or an app, yeah, or Snapchat. He didn't invent Snapchat. No, okay. I get it. One of my cousins, it turns out, invented Snapchat. Wait, that guy? What's his name? Shit. No, not the a- famous Evan? one. His yeah. partner. Oh, okay. I never met the guy, but um, well, I don't know if they're my cousin or they're my cousin's cousin. Yeah. But my cousin in Scotland told me that her cousin. Um, is one of the Snapchat founders. So I don't know if that makes that person my cousin or if it's just her is, cousin. Is it like finding out you're Native American, you're going to get some money? No, I don't think so. Ah, shit. <laughs> um, but William Stanley Jevons, uh, an English economist and logician. Um, Irving Fisher described Jevons' book, A General Mathematical Theory of Political Economy from 1862, as the start of the mathematical method in economics. It made the case. Econ guy, too. Yeah. Uh, wasn't that your major? Yeah. 
It's, Five it's years. A, it's a really good uh, pick. Yeah, man, that book, I just keep coming back to it. I love this story of how you almost got stuck in Mexico and deported. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was dumb. <laughs> yeah. That was close. I could have actually gotten deported. Yeah. Oh, man, I, I don't want to digress too much from, from our guy, William, but yeah. just Well, made, let's read the philosophy. Um, it made the case that e economics as a science concerned with quantities is necessarily mathematical. Hmm. In so doing it, expounded upon the final utility theory of value. Jevons's work, along with the similar discoveries made by Carl Menger in Vienna, 1871, and by Leon Wal Walrus in Switzerland, 1874, marked the opening of a new period in the history of economic thought. Jevons's contribution to the marginal revolution in e economics in the late 19th century established his reputation as a leading political economist and logician of the time. Okay. And Alex's synopsis to break down Jevons's philosophy is he says, innovation is bad for the environment. More efficient machines burn less fuel, which appears to help the environment. However, better products means increased demand, burning more fuel than ever. Business people will rationalize that they are helping, pointing to short-term benefits like burning less fuel. They will popularize their rationalization to convince others that they're not guilty. The only way to offset this is to tax them and use money to fight social ills. Not bothering to consider the real math of what we're doing shows disrespect for future generations. And once industry has made a rationalization sound great, it's very hard to convince the masses that it's wrong. Ah, I see. So yeah. he's saying Ford comes out with an electric car. And that helps the environment, that car itself. But it actually drives up the demand of all Ford cars. And that actually, in the long term, hurts the environment. Yeah. They're using that good car to as a commercial to sell more bad cars. Yeah, it's good car, bad car. Good car, bad car. <laughs> so he's saying that we should tax those guys to make up for the environmental damage in general. I guess so, yeah. Ah, very interesting. But this was before Elon Musk and the Tesla. Yeah. Whereas... It's all good cars. Yeah, you would well, think. Yeah, they're talking that that example is fuel, but I guess the example probably works for a lot of things where you think, you know, oh, I'm making something to help, but then if you make more of it, it's going to wind up being worse. Mm. Is there an example maybe in uh, TV? Okay, say or a film, right? So say I I I'm in Black Panther. I'm in the next Black. Black Panther. Are you? Becomes, no, I'm not. Okay. It uh, becomes a blockbuster hit. I become super famous. Um, but I, I use that good power to do a bunch of shitty commercials. <laughs> that hurts the environment. Is that is that what it's saying? Maybe. I can't think of an example outside of fuel. And I guess the fuel one, you know what? It might be airplanes. Like airplanes, it seems like it's doing something better by inventing them, but you wind up burning so much. Well, I think it, it, it's all companies, right? Yeah. They always, they spent money on goodwill. Every company has a department that like gives to a charity. Like I'm sure Procter & Gamble has its own giving charity department. But by doing that, they're just trying to tell the consumers, hey guys, look, I'm a good company. But really, it's about the bottom line. Because whatever hundred grand they give, they get that hundred thousand dollars of uh, advertising and goodwill. So now people buy one million dollars more of their product. That's actually hurting. Not great for yeah. the environment. Not great for the kids. 
right? right. Sure. So, so yeah. that's what it is. I agree with that. Yeah, that may, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I have a, a paragraph here. So he's saying, he's saying, but what is he saying though? Like, 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 don't even give to the kids could be because it leads to more damage. Um, I don't know. Like BP oil, for example. Yeah. They fucked the environment up, right? And then I think after that, they did some kind of charity work where they're like, we're going to give this much profit to the environment. Just so people can go buy more BP oil because they seem like a good company. So in turn, it damages the environment more. That's exactly what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. So should should we, like, can we call bullshit on that? Or like, should they not even give? Because that's, but that's how our psychology is as consumers. When we see it, we're like, okay, these are the good guys. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I don't know. I don't know. So what... he's saying that he's suggesting we should tax them. Yeah. His his idea was to tax them. Yeah. So I guess that you take that tax money and you put it back into, you know. Right. So maybe the solution is uh, you tax them whatever damage they're doing. And now uh, it doesn't say that. BP is giving to the Boys and Girls Foundation. It just says the U.S. government is giving to the Boys and Girls Foundation, and and BP loses that as advertising, right? Mm. Yeah, because they shouldn't. Charity shouldn't be fucking advertising, but yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. So to take that away from them, you sh we should. Yeah, should we though? I, I but then know. they'll be less incentivized. Yeah. To give. Sure. I don't know. It's a it's a complicated thing. It's one of those philosophies where I feel like it's very nice to philosophize about when you actually practically try and implement it. I don't know that there's such a clear solution. Right, because if you say whenever you give to charity as a corporation, you can advertise your own company's name on it, but then they'll be less likely to give, which will, you know, yeah, be bad for the charities. Hmm. Mm. Hey, fuck them, just tax them. <laughs> yeah. You know, give me a tax break and tax those guys. I have a, t a paragraph here written by William Jevons. I always ask the guest to read the paragraph, mm -hmm. and we could stop at any point throughout it and discuss it. Paragraph. Authority has ever been the great opponent of truth. A despotic calm is the triumph of error. What does that mean? I don't even know what despotic means. I don't either. So let's, let's look at the first sentence. Authority has ever been the great opponent of truth. So authority... Has been a great. So they're talking about oppression, I guess. I immediately go to politics. Like right. when when you have somebody in authority, their number one thing is, you know, ah. you know they're going to be a liar. You know. So that, or I I had interpreted it as like, you know, if you have uh, authoritative figures, they suppresses the truth from the people. Yeah. So I guess it's both. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so despotic calm is the triumph of error. Um, in the Republic of the Sciences. Anarchy is beneficial in the long run to the greatest happiness of the greatest number. So he's talking about utilitarianism, which I very much agree with. So he's a basically saying sciences, anarchy is beneficial in the long run to the greatest. So he's an anarchist. Let me read that again. In the Republic of Sciences, anarchy is beneficial in the long run to the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Our duties consist in the wise application of wealth. We may spend it on luxury and we shall be blamed. On the other hand, we may spend it 
on reducing the burdens of future generations. Yeah, this is kind of like what I was just talking about. Exactly. Oh my God, that's insane. That's like, this has happened a few times over the years of the show where yeah. like the universe lines up exactly with the conversation. This is honestly like how I feel about wanting to get rich. Right, right, right. That's okay. Even, so last sentence, even, as, even if our successors be less happy than ourselves, they will not then blame us. Oh, interesting. So he's kind of doing it for a selfish reason. He's like, uh, I'm going to give to the selfish generation. Even if they might not be down with me, at least they can't blame me. That's like mm. what my parents do. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, we'll, we'll raise you the best you can. You can't blame us. Right, right. right we did the best we can. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So what'd you get out of that all in all? Our duties consist. It, it's an. It's an. I, I don't really understand the anarchy thing that he's saying. In the Republic of the Sciences, anarchy is beneficial in the long run to the greatest happiness of the greatest number. So he said, in our science, in the scientific world, uh, anarchy will lead to uh, the best utilitarianism. Right. I don't understand the anarchy either. I don't know what what this anarchy yeah. he's talking about is. Anarchy, I guess, against authority. So he's trying to say, you know, if there's no authority? Because the authority stands in the way of truth. Yeah. Huh. So I guess if, you know, that's interesting. Our duty. That goes to like global warming and stuff maybe for me. Mm. Where it's like, it, you know, assuming that global warming is a real thing as it seems to be presented to us mm -hmm. by many scientists. Um we currently, you know, see politicians saying there is no global warming. Mm -hmm. So in that scenario, that's a lie. Right. So then the truth, yeah. anarchy will lead against to the government would actually lead to the greater good. Ah, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. That, that's what they're saying. Although I don't pretend to understand global warming at all any more than I just hear a lot of people I know say, global warming is real and they're lying. And I go, yeah, yeah, you're probably well, right. Well, I just, I have a couple guys I call for certain things, like <laughs> yeah. Kevin Peter Hickerson, yeah. who's a nuclear scientist, uh, our buddy from Caltech. So I just call him. I'm like, I just ask, is global warming real? He's like, oh, yeah, it's fucking real. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> all right, I'm good. That's it. I'm good. <laughs> he did all his research. I'm good. Right? But he might have just called some other guy. <laughs> no, man. Like, you would think. I give, He's the smartest guy I know in science. Yeah. So that's it. Or, or like uh, like a lot of people was talking about uh, all these uh, like uh, people were talking about like mercury retrograde. That's why I'm this and that and blah blah. So I asked Kevin. I'm like, is there any scientific backing to mercury retrograde? He's like, no, it's fucking bullshit for the most part. And I'm like, okay, good. Right. I'm good. I'm good. I'm at peace. <laughs> then you find out like five years from now, Kevin's running some illegal prostitution <laughs> ring down in Tijuana. And you're like, I don't know what I believe anymore. If, well, even if he's running an illegal <laughs> prostitution ring, if he's still a Caltech scientist, I'll still call him. I'll still call him in his prison cells. Like, hey, um, what's up with this planetary stuff? He's like, Jimmy, don't you get it? It was all the cover, man. I never knew. You're like, no, nah, I don't believe that. I'm still, tell me the truth. So, Okay. So he's saying, which is this point, I kind of don't agree, right? Like, I mean, I agree that, you know, wise application of wealth. Uh, it was, it was, so he's saying we shouldn't spend it on luxury. We should spend it on reducing the burdens of future generation. I agree with that. Yeah. I don't agree with his motivation because he keeps saying, if we spend it on luxury, we shall be blamed. And if we spend it on reducing uh, the burden of future generation, then they cannot blame us. That's not how I live my life. 
I'm not. I'm not trying to. You know. Yeah, you, yeah. It, it seems like, like right a, motivation. a deflection at the end there. Like hey, it's just yeah. like yeah. It's just I'm doing this just so you can't talk shit about me. <laughs> it's for my legacy. Yeah, yeah. And it's another generation. He's already dead. You know, whatever. Yeah, but I don't. I don't. You know, I. I always think. You know, do it because you care. Yeah. But do it. Look, at the end of the day, we all do things to make us feel better. I'm definitely going to buy some nice shit when I get rich, too. It's not like I'm not going to Well, but also, like, okay, you want your motivation yeah. of, like, giving, right? I want to give, yeah. Because at the end of the day, it still makes you feel better. Yeah. But it's just different things to make you feel better. Buying Ferrari made right. you feel better before. But now maybe giving to starving kids. But why? But it's still because it makes you feel better. But, but it makes me feel better in a way that also makes them feel better. You know, it's, right. it's not just making me feel better, just making uh, just for myself. But you feel better because they feel better. Yeah, I mean, you're, which is all I can ask for. Yeah, like it's nothing is completely selfless. There's yeah, there's nothing where you're actually giving and not getting at the same time. It's just the Dalai like, Lama does what he does because he feels better about it because he'll feel like shit if he doesn't do it. Right. Even though he's it's helping, he's people, stuck which is at this point. He can't. Yeah, he can't. He can't just go to the strip club. <laughs> yeah. Right. Dolly? Is that you? Yeah, hey, man, is that you? Damn, okay. <laughs> he's like, you know, I, I always wonder if, like, the Pope just wants to wear jeans. Like, yeah. He's just like, I walked around in my bathroom for, like. Instagram real quick. Yeah. You know? The other day, I walked around in my bathroom till 11 a.m., and I couldn't stand it anymore. I'm like, I wonder how the Pope feels. Like, you know, he's in that. <laughs> Are there pockets? Pockets are very important. I can be in my pajamas all day, but my pajama pants better have pockets. Yeah. <laughs> so do the Pope have pockets? A, po- a Pope pocket. I feel pope like the pocket. The Pope probably has just like a guy who is a human pocket who walks around next to right. him. Right. Right. When you have an yeah. assistant and yeah. you're like, do you really need a pocket? Like his legit job is to be a pocket. Yeah. It's like what you were talking about in the book about the people at Central Casting who are just human airbags. I think. <laughs> yeah. Atmosphere. That's yeah. what we'll call them. Yeah. Oh, so sad. It's just, it just atmosphere. I remember I did that when I first came to LA. I stood in that long line that Everybody you describe. Did. and just sign up to be an actor, to be an extra. I had to go casting. three times because I like they cut the line off before they got to me the first two times. Oh, you my have to, God. Like, at a oh, I didn't even point, know that. Yeah. If you don't get there early enough... So the second time I'm like, I got there even earlier. And then two people before me, they're like, the line ends here. And and I'm like, are you kidding me? And I had to go back a third time, all for the most depressing outcome in the world. It's worse than the yeah. DMV. At least a DMV, like, you can wait two hours, but they're going to get to you. They're yeah. not going to tell you come back tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was rough. I didn't like being an extra very much. Did you do it? I did it for a little bit. I wound up uh, an extra on Parks and Rec. Hmm. And, um, you know, me and Aziz started stand-up together, and we used to be... Oh, wow. We used to hang out every night waiting to go on stage. And, like, they wouldn't even let me near the Aziz area, and that was, like, too much for my ego to handle. Oh. Like, well, did you get was, to talk to him? No. Like, they wouldn't even let oh me go near... I'm like, oh, but I know know him. They're like, the extras stay over here. And I was just like, I can't be an extra anymore. Oh, that's interesting. Because on was, our like, show... It felt embarrassing to me. On our show, the extras are kind of... Maybe they try to wrangle them or whatever, right? But like, I've talked to a few extras that I've done stand up with, and like, I always, I always tell the PM like, "Yo, take care of this guy. He's a fucking funny guy." Yeah. You know, I don't know what taking care of him means. Yeah. You know, but maybe put him more in the. <laughs> they just, you know, they hit you with like, the cattle prod. Yeah, you know, like just lesson. don't cattle prod him. You know. <laughs> I don't know. I just felt like it was it was too much on my ego. Being, I didn't like the whole extra thing. I I did it for a little bit. 
It pays pays terrible. You might as well go work at a Starbucks. Yeah, it, I would have. I, I would have found that less embarrassing, because I was also like, if I wanted to make sure that I saw Aziz before Aziz saw me, that was important to me in, in my head at that that huh. day. Like I didn't want him to see me. Stand, what was your goal? Like, he would come and say, "Hey, what up, man?" No, just my yeah. My only goal was just to to take control of the situation rather than like him be like, "Oh, look, Lobel, man, what a loser! He's just an extra here now." Oh, I'd yeah, rather man. be like, I I wanted to acknowledge like acknowledge like, "Hey, um, hey, I I'm aware of that I'm here and that you know yeah. I I wanted to have that, but." In any case, he didn't see me well, and I didn't see him. It's but. an interesting thing. A lot of times, like uh, when we were filming Crazy Rich Asians in Singapore and Malaysia, the, the extras was just literally somebody's friend, cousin, or whatever. It's not like a central casting. It's not um, uh, uh, filtered, these yeah. people, right? And then like people would like, come up like to us and like, it's really weird. Like they will invite us to like the family owned gun range and they ask my buddy for his phone number. And like that, that makes. It very hard. Like we're trying to concentrate on acting, right? And that makes it like, oh, I got, and I feel bad because I don't want to give my number, and I, I don't like to say no to people. So I get it when they're they the PAs try to separate you because of you know certain bad apples like that, or, yeah. or people just you will talk your ear off or try to you know take a picture at the wrong time, maybe when you're in your costume or something like that, and then you feel like the asshole for saying no. And I realize that, yeah, and and also that day with the um. Going up to, I knew I had no business going up to him. I just also felt like I have no business being an extra here either. This is that's true, you know. But I mean, you know, I always treat extras very nicely to a fault. I think because I know for me, it's not. It's only a few years of. It's not very far removed that when I try to be an extra, you know, and everybody went through that. So yeah. like this guy could be in my shoes, you know, and you know, in a few years. And who's to say that I'm actually more talented than this guy, right? Right. Maybe he's just new to this town or something. Um, so I always treat him very nicely. But then the problem is I do run into situations where people are acting like weird or like I get myself trapped because I was nice to the guy. But then that guy actually has ulterior motives. You yeah. Know? And and it gets it get it gets it could get muddy. It's a tricky thing. Yeah. So now I've learned, and I think most actors have learned that just generally, even though there might be a lot of great people out there. You should just try to, you know, keep close to the vest when it comes to talking to extras. Yeah, I I think you're right. Like in a, in a certain way, it's better to be working at a Starbucks because it's it's just not a good position at a certain point to put yourself in because you're not going to advance. Yeah. That way, and if you even try to, that would be obnoxious, you know, and look and you'd wind up burning a bridge. Yeah, you're already so, letting yourself known like. Eh, I'm not going to be an actor in the show. Yeah, but the Starbucks guy, he could audition for a part. Right, right. Know? Yeah. So in a in a weird way, like you're worse off than a Starbucks. Like you're lower in the totem pole. Yeah. Because a Starbucks, you're a struggling actor that's trying to make it to your next audition and you get your next job. As an extra, you're an extra. It feels like you've given up. That's it. Yeah. You're like I'm not valuable. Just so you know. Yeah. That was I I I've overheard like some of the funniest extra conversations. Some of these people become professional extras because mm. if you become like a union extra, you can make like three hundred bucks a day, which is not bad at all. Yeah. Right. So some of these people, like uh, this year in Silicon Valley, um, there's a group of extras. They're like middle aged, and uh, you know, like a lot of them's like done it forever, you know. And one lady was like, "Yeah, so I told my mom to watch the show. I've been an extra on the show for like I don't know, like ten episodes now," and and she said. Oh, I didn't see you on there, Karen. And then she's like, Mom, 
My back of the head was right there in front of the shot. How can you not have seen me? And I'm like, holy shit, wait a minute. As crazy and trivial and insane as this sound, I go through the same problem. Yeah. Because when I first got on TV, I told my dad, I'm like, hey, uh, I got two lines on uh, CBS, Two Pro Girls. Right, yeah. And my dad was like, oh, I don't have CBS. I'm like, yo, everybody has CBS. And then when he watched it, he was like, where were you? I'm like, I was right there. Yeah. You know? So everybody has the same issues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How can you not see the back of my head? I was right there. It shows, like, even just that little bit of validation would have meant a lot to that girl. I you know. know? Exactly. And, and that's all we're looking for at the end of the yeah. day. You know? All right. To wrap up the show, I always ask the guests to read the quotes. So uh, will you do the honors? Absolutely. Uh, quotes. Economics. Uh, what, what's the author's name again? I'm sorry. William Jevons. Quotes by William Jevons from the 1800s. Yes. Economics is a calculus of pleasure and pain. For me, it was just pain. I, <laughs> <laughs> For me, too. It was just shit, you know. <laughs> economics is a calculus of pleasure and pain. Man. Why did you pick economics? Just family pressure? It was the easiest major that Asian parents would still approve of. That's so funny. I my major was the easiest major. Period. What was it? Communications. <laughs> yes. Oh my god! No way! I just guessed. I had no idea. I was working at the radio station at my college. That that's what like the only reason I even like kept going to school. Actually, I was going to drop out of college and just pursue stand up. And I bought. There was a website. I don't know if it's still around called Laugh.com, and they oh, wow. used to sell. This is like way before. You bought Laugh.com. No, like the don't. Okay, I'm about <laughs> they, to say. I that, bought a CD a off, money. off Laugh. They okay. had like these conversations with comedians. So before you could go and listen to a million podcasts uh, of comedians being interviewed, the only place you could find like a nice long interview with a comedian that I knew of was Laugh.com. Oh wow! And they had Woody Allen, Johnny Carson, Jerry Lewis. Oh cool! And um and I and then I I listened to all those and then I bought Jerry Seinfeld. And I remember it was like the week I was going to like man up and tell my parents I'm dropping out of college. I don't care what you say. I'm done. I just want to do stand-up. And I listened to this interview and they asked Jerry Seinfeld, they're like, do you ever think about um, dropping out of college because you were in Queens College doing stand-up? And he's like, I did. I was thinking of dropping out of it, but I remember thinking that there's something really important um, about setting a precedent for myself in life that I finish what I start. Ah. And I, and that was all it took. And I'm like, I guess I'll finish college. And the next day I went in and I changed my major to communications. I'm like, I said, what's the quickest way yeah, out of same, here? Yeah, same. Because I hated UCSD. I wanted to transfer UCLA or like, you know, USC or, or whatever, right? Something more fun, more yeah. of a party school. I'm like, fuck it. I'm just going to do this as soon as possible. Yeah. It still took me five years. But yeah. I was like, I'm just going to do it as quickly as possible and get the fuck out of here. Yeah. You know, so because everybody is telling you this at least could be a backup plan. You need a backup plan. Like, I'm like, not really. I don't ever plan on coming back. My backup plan will be fucking going to work at a Denny's. I remember somebody told me you need a backup plan. And I said, I don't want to look back. I want to, I want to, uh, maybe I'll fall, a fall forward plan. Yeah, but I don't want to. I don't want a backup plan. I'll try something else instead yeah. of. But whatever. But I went in. But when you're young, you're yeah. insecure. You're like, oh, maybe I do need a backup plan. You don't know. You you don't know what. Never look back, work. baby. Yeah. Look at us. 
Yeah. Mama, we made it. <laughs> All right, next quote. There is a hurtful tendency to allow opinions to crystallize into creeds. Ooh, that's interesting. There's a hurt. So there's a ten. So there's a tendency to allow opinions to crystallize and turn to creeds. That's very true. I think. I think that also just speaks to what we were talking about with the backup plan, where you allow someone's opinion. Yeah. To, to turn into like your life. Yeah. To what you believe in. Yeah. Right. You don't know what to think. Well, cool. Labor once spent is gone and lost forever. Oh, I like that one. Labor once spent. Is gone and lost forever. I don't know if I agree with that one. I feel like everything you do continues on forever. Mm-hmm. I think I I think he's saying on an economic standpoint, like labor once it's done, it's gone. No, but labor leads to something. No, like, yeah, even like a you, building. You you labored on the building. Yeah, that building might host somebody. That building might host someone who invents something that changes the world, and that thing, uh, you know, that continue that thing. Even if the building gets yeah. blown up, that continues on the thing that was made in the building. So I feel like labor changes forms, hmm. but it's like the it after it's done. But the it, effects. It's, hmm, it's interesting because my grand uncle is a rich man. But he would always spend. He would like to spend things on like things. He would like to spend money on things instead of like say food, because he's like food. Once you eat it, it's gone. Mm-hmm. You don't get to see it. You don't get to play with it no more. I don't know if I agree with that, but that's how a lot of people think. Yeah. You know, and millennials obviously don't think like that because they live more in the moment, right? So, so you pay for the moment of even going to concerts. They're spending more money in concerts mm-hmm. and live events now yeah. instead of things. Yeah, I used to have a joke early into stand-up that I don't want to lose weight because all my money is tied up in fat. <laughs> it's like the Simpsons grease episode when they try to sell used grease. No, I don't remember that. What happened in that? Like uh, he, like Homer uh, realized that he can sell grease for money. So he bought a bunch of bacon and just threw away all the bacon so he can sell the grease for like 50 cents. But then Bart was like, Yo, but the bacon costs us thirty dollars. He's like, yeah, but that's your mom's money. <laughs> <laughs> it's really a brilliant episode. Um, cool, man. Well, listen, really awesome having you on the show. Thank you for coming in here and doing it. Thanks for having me, man. It was really fun and yeah. enlightening. And I'm glad to, uh, you know, we talked about so much stuff, and uh, I'm glad you related to the book. Yeah, I love the book. Was there anything about economics that you liked? I was, I, I've always, I was into the stock market. I like money. I like crunching numbers. It's fine. Uh, but the economics, like the theories and stuff, um, I've learned a few things about how the, econo- like the economy works, but it's very complicated and I just don't want to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm willfully ignorant. Yeah. I'm, I'm ignorant, but not willfully. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just gotta, you gotta know somebody and you can just call them. Yeah. Like yeah. you have with uh, Kevin. Kevin. Yeah. The book is called How to American, and it's available where books are sold. Is yeah, that Amazon, any bookstore you can walk into, How to American, and Immigrants Got a Disappointing Appearance. It's exciting. It's an exciting time for you as an artist, man. Thank you, man. And uh, it's fun watching the evolution on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Thank you, Dan. All right, everybody, that's our show for today. Thank you for tuning in. Next week, we're going to have a brand new intro song written by 
the tremendously talented Zach Sherwin and performed by my buddy Mike Kaplan. You guys, uh, something to look forward to. Please, you know the show depends on your support. Go to moderndayphilosophers.net. Make a donation. Go to fairenoughcomic.com and pick up a copy of Fair Enough Issue 2 while there still are some left. The cart before the horse. I'll sign it for you. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Hey, I hope you're still there. I just wanted to add on one quick thing. Since I talked to my buddy Jimmy O. Yang a few months ago when I recorded this interview, one thing that was bugging me, I kept thinking about that conversation we had with regards to my dad and the comic book and writing about him. And the more I think about it, the more I really come around to my dad's point of view on this. And I think it's important, that the takeaway from this, for me anyway, is that, and I think it's true for a lot of people, when we deal with our parents, we really want them to get us so bad. And it's so easy for your feelings to get hurt and to get absorbed in your own emotions. And it's difficult to really stop and put yourself in their shoes and see where they're coming from. And I think that's kind of a sign of growth for me anyway, that I've been able to do that. And yeah, maybe he could have done that nicer or put it to me nicer. But at the end of the day, it does kind of break my heart to make my either one of my parents feel disrespected. They've done and continue to do so much for me, just, just being my parents. And it's not what I want to do. So... I guess it was kind of a little moment of growth for me since I recorded this, just thinking about, you know what? I see where my dad is coming from, and I could feel that. I can feel how he could have taken that the wrong way, and I will do better in the future. It's important to me. I thought I'd share that with you guys. All right, looking forward to you hearing the next episode. It's going to be great. It's a really great one lined up. I'm not going to give anything away, but uh, yeah, please leave a nice comment and five stars in the iTunes store in the meantime, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.